Good morning, brothers and sisters. Um, I'm so happy to be with you all to worship King Jesus. Uh, As you most of you know, we're in a series on the book of Acts. And in our passage this morning, the author Luke, he has two primary aims, two aims. First, he aims to inform the readers of the final stops, the final stops on Paul's second missionary journey. And he's also going to record the beginning of his third And that makes this passage really very transitional in nature. And it includes a bunch of comments like, Paul stopped here and there and there. And second, Luke is going to introduce us to an influential leader in the early church named Apollos. And so as Luke informs us of Paul's missionary stops, and as he introduces us to Apollos, what I want to do is highlight the different marks of a discipler we see exhibited in this passage. In other words, I think this passage can show us key characteristics of a person who lives to make disciples of Jesus. So again, we're going to be looking at the marks of a disciple in this passage. Now, uh, to be honest, we're going to cover quite a few. I lost count. And so as you listen, I encourage you to pray. I encourage you to ask God which one or two or three he especially wants you to work on in your life. And so with that framework set, let's read our passage, pray, and dig in. Uh, Acts chapter 18, verses 18 through 28. Acts chapter 18, starting at verse 18. It reads, After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Centra, he had cut his hair for he was under a vial. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Let's pray. Father, giver of life, giver of hope, giver of wisdom. We ask you now that by your spirit, you would give us and impart to us spiritual wisdom and understanding to receive your word with understanding and be able to obey it. Father, let not this word go in vain. Father, I pray and I ask that you would accomplish all your purposes as I know you will. And I pray that one of those purposes is that the saints will be edified and encouraged this morning. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So this morning, our passage picks up right where we left off last week. Uh, So let's do a brief little recap. At this point in the narrative of Acts, Paul has just spent over a year in the city of Corinth. And during this time, he, he met a married couple, Priscilla and Aquila, who both happened to be tent makers like himself. By God's providence, they not only became his business partners, uh, but they also became ministry partners. We also learn that Paul, in conjunction with his tent-making occupation, he regularly visited the local synagogue, and he was there teaching that Jesus was the Savior promised by God to the people of Israel. Now, while some did come to saving faith, some were baptized, even rulers of the synagogue like Titius Justice, there still remained a large group uh, who criticized and attacked Paul's ministry, which eventually led to them to try to get Paul arrested, but only to to be disappointed by the decision of the governing leader, leader, Galileo, who refused to bring any charge against Paul. And these angry Jews, they were outraged. They were infuriated. And so what they ended up doing is beating the leader of the synagogue right in front of Galileo. And Luke says, Galileo paid no attention to any of this. And so it's in this context that our passage begins. Angry Jews are trying to get Paul arrested. They're trying to take care of him, which led to them mercilessly beating a man right in front of the authorities. And noting this context is important because it adds significance to the first verse of our passage, verse 18. Look there with me. It says, after this, that is the accusation of Paul and the beating of Sosthenes, Paul stayed many days longer. Any normal human being would have probably got out of Dodge but the next day. But Paul's not normal, right? (laughs) He's Paul. And so what does he do when he's got angry, violent people coming at his throat? Well, according to Luke, he stays many days longer. And this leads us to one of the first marks of a discipler we see exhibited in this passage. And that is, disciplers are marked by courage, Put another way, they don't shrink back in the face of opposition. No, instead, they stay many days longer. Why? Well, because the one they follow, Jesus, stayed longer. I know most of us uh, probably grew up seeing pictures of Jesus snuggling with little lambs and children on his lap, and that's so sweet. And unfortunately, though, I think these images have often communicated that Jesus was soft and even maybe mousy. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus was brave. Jesus was courageous and strong. He's the type of God-man that walked with a steel spine and a deep resolve to carry out the dangerous mission of his father, which, which ended with him hanging by his flesh on a cross, bearing the full wrath of Almighty God on his back. Jesus wasn't soft. He was courageous. And so it makes sense that that his disciples, right, from Stephen to Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, courageously endured the violent opposition and hostility that came to them on account of their testimony about Jesus. The second mark of a discipler that I want to draw our attention to is also found in verse 18. Look there with me again. It says, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. 
Now, it's kind of easy to just breeze right over that statement, set sail for Syria, and, and just not grasp all that it entails. Because for us moderns, that's not a big deal. We can quickly and, and comfortably travel thousands of miles by either plane, car, or boat. And really, that's one of the modern mar- marvels. We have trimmed travel time down in ways that ancient people could not even conceive or dream of. But unlike us moderns, when Paul set sail for Syria, this trek, this journey would have involved all sorts of challenges and dangers. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 27, when writing to a group of Christians who are beginning to, to doubt his credibility as an apostle, Paul gives them just a brief list, a brief list of the kinds of trials he faced as he traveled the world proclaiming the gospel. So, so just listen to this list. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And I think Paul's point is clear. To travel the ancient world, proclaiming the gospel in hostile places, to set sail for Syria was dangerous and difficult and filled with all kinds of life-threatening struggles. Yet Paul endured them all. Yet Paul was steadfast and would not give up on the mission he received from the Lord Jesus Christ to go and make disciples of all nations. And so from this, then, we see that disciples are marked by steadfastness. Disciples don't give up when it gets hard or or when the sacrifice is great. Well, why? Well, because the one they followed didn't give up. As Jesus was mocked, spit on, and beaten, as he was nailed to the cross limb by limb, he didn't call it quits. He didn't call down his legions of angels and fail to complete the job. Jesus, with with great endurance, went to the bloody end until he could say it is finished. So, So like Jesus and those after, disciples are called, were called to remain steady and determined to endure whatever struggles we must face for the sake of the gospel to go forth. Now we're not done yet with verse 18. Know also that it says that Paul set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. Now, remember, this relationship with this married couple originated from a business partnership and tent making. But over time, as we see here, they also became his ministry partners. And what I want to show you is that it's not unusual for Paul to do that. In fact, almost always, Paul did ministry with others. Already in the book of Acts so far, we have seen him with Barnabas, uh, Silas, Timothy, and now Priscilla and Aquila. And this is hugely instructive for us because it presents us with a pattern of how Paul actually went about making disciples, how he went about being a discipler. And that is, he wasn't a lone ranger. 
trying to bear the burden of ministry all by himself, but he took others with him. And as a result, he raised up more fruitful and more mature disciples than he could have done by himself. In fact, even Jesus brought the disciples with him almost everywhere he went. And so this is one of the reasons uh, our very own elder, Jeff Lyons, he's given me this advice on multiple occasions. He says, Robert, don't get in trouble by yourself. Don't do it. And which is a funny way of saying, don't try to take on the world alone. There is wisdom in numbers. And so disciplers, they're marked by joint efforts with other believers, partnerships. Now in the second sentence of verse 18, we indeed find one more mark of a discipler. Look there with me. It says, at Centria, he, that is Paul, had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. So before getting in a boat to set sail for Syria, you know, Paul wants to freshen up. Uh, you know, before he goes on a vacation, you usually get a haircut, right? And for his big return to the churches he planted, and, and so he grabs a haircut in the seaport city called Centria, and, uh, okay, it wasn't to look good. He didn't get the haircut to look good. I'm joking. Rather, Luke tells us that he cut his hair because he was under a vow. Now, exactly what kind of vow, we're not sure. Luke doesn't tell us. Some scholars think it could have been a Nazarite vow or just a private commitment to the Lord. Either way, what matters most for us is not what kind of vow, but that Paul still uh, practiced Jewish customs, like taking vows before God. Which, which it kind of helps us understand more about Paul's character as a person. Put simply, pre-Christ, pre-conversion, he was a pious, devout Jew. And that part really never really changed. And we see from this passage, he continued practicing certain Jewish customs that didn't contradict his new status in Christ. And so perhaps this is what he meant when he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20, saying, To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. And at the very least, it shows us that Paul was faithful. The type of person when he made a promise, he kept it. The type of man who fulfilled his resolutions made before God. And honestly, this is to be accepted because Paul was a disciple, a follower of Jesus, who never, ever, ever failed to keep a promise. He will do it again, right? The song says. And again, the one who always keeps his word. And therefore, it makes sense why disciples like Paul are marked by faithfulness. It's, it's a consistent habit and, and pattern of doing what you say you're going to do. Okay, so to recap then, from verse 18 alone, we have noted four marks of a discipler. That is, disciplers are marked that they're characterized by courage, steadfastness, uh, strong ministry, gospel partnerships, and faithfulness. Now, let's pause for a second and ask, are any of these marks so far one that especially stands out to you? One that you feel that God is pressing on you to hear and grow in this morning. And, and if so, don't let it slip out of your mind as we go through the rest of this passage. Mark it. Remember it. Now let's turn to verse 19 to add some more to the list. It says, And they, that is Paul and the married couple, Priscilla and Aquila, came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he, Paul himself, went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So if you take a look at the map on the screen, 
uh, you'll see the route that Paul took from Corinth to Ephesus on his way back to Syria, Antioch. And when Paul arrived in Ephesus, he did what he always did when he got to a city. Luke tells us that Paul went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And as we learn from the book of Acts so far, this was Paul's uh, primary missional approach to advancing the gospel in the world. He almost always, always began at the local synagogue. And not only did he, uh, and I guess what I want to say is, from what I want us to learn from this is that Paul strategically used his background and personal experience as a Pharisee to serve as, as a bridge to reach the lost. And not only did he visit the synagogues, remember, he also used his occupation, tent making, as, as a medium for gospel ministry. Just look at Priscilla and Aquila. And so from Paul's example, we see that to advance the gospel, effective disciples reach out to people in their existing social networks. See, we all have a story that naturally connects us with different people. Some of, of you are engineers, which provides the base for you to build a relationship with other engineers. Some of you are teachers. Some of you are parents. Some of you are tradesmen. Some of you are retired. Some of you like golf. All of these different backgrounds and stages of life can serve as a bridge for us to establish a relational connection with unbelievers, what Pastor Gary always calls on-ramps. Disciplers, as Paul shows us, they use on-ramps. And since we're all familiar with this principle, the real question is, which on-ramp have you not taken yet? What person in your life do you have a natural on-ramp with, but whether out of fear or forgetfulness or whatever, you have not taken advantage of it for the sake of the gospel? So I want to encourage us to take the next step to start that conversation so that the gospel can go forth through us. Now, there's another phrase I want to look at in verse 19, which gives us Mark number 6. Luke writes that Paul went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. At least seven times in the book of Acts, the author Luke describes Paul's ministry among unbelievers with this same word, reasoned. Let me, let me quote a few for you. Acts 17, 2, And Paul went in, and as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Acts 17, 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. Acts 18, 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. Acts 19, 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly. What do you think he was doing? Reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Put simply then, Paul's ministry was marked by reasoning. That is, critical thinking, clear explanations, and dialogue, regular dialogue with unbelievers. In other words, to make disciples of Jesus, Paul would not stay silent. He didn't keep his mouth shut. Of course, there are times that silence is the best way forward in a relationship with an unbeliever. And I, I acknowledge that. But I think we err on that side far too often. Let's just ask ourselves, when is the last time we reasoned? When is the last time we engaged in a focused, intentional conversation about the gospel from Scripture with an unbeliever? 
Not that we need to go around Bible-thumping folks, but I think Paul's example definitely offers a corrective to our modern-day approaches, which are so concerned with not offending our neighbor that we never actually get to any conversation at all about the gospel. And surely having a good relationship with our unbelieving neighbor is valuable and so important And I don't want to discount that, but let's not forget that a good relationship with us, no matter how good it is, won't save them from the wrath to come. It will not save them from their sins. They need a relationship with Jesus. And that comes through how? Through faith in the hearing of the gospel. And Paul understood this. So he constantly went into the synagogues and reasoned. So let's take Paul's example as an encouragement for us to reason, to initiate gospel conversations, although uncomfortable, although risky and sometimes scary, but nevertheless necessary for the salvation of our friends, family, coworkers, and neighbors, brothers and sisters. Disciplers are marked by reasoning from the scriptures. Moving forward, let's look to verse 20. Look there with me. It says, when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. So so after some reasoning in the local synagogue, some of the residents wanted Paul to stay. And this is important because it helps us understand why Paul will later come back to Ephesus, a, a major city in the Roman Empire, and spend over two years there doing gospel ministry. But but right now, Paul's on the move. He's, he's eager to return to Syria, and so he declines their request. However, he does assure them of his desire to come back, saying in verse 21, I will. I will return to you if God wills. Now, most of us know that Paul, in his other letters, has provided us with some of the most robust theology and doctrine out of all the New Testament writers. I mean, for example, he's the one who penned the great promise of Romans 8.28, which says that for those who love God, all things work together for good. In other words, Paul taught that God sovereignly rules over all things in the universe for the good of his people. But what's amazing is that in our passage, we see that Paul's theology doesn't remain on a shelf or in a book. What he believes about God, his theology, actually shapes his view of the world, his attitude and his actions. Put another way, Paul lived his theology. He tells the Ephesians, I'll come back, I will, if God wills. That is, if God has planned and purposed for me to return. And this really isn't just one-off example. Paul lived this way. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 19. He writes, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. Same phrase, basically. And remember what James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15 teaches us. You remember that? Come now. You who say today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live or do this or that. And if ever... If ever we have learned how true it is that our plans for tomorrow are not fixed or certain, it's in our current season of life. 
COVID has exposed the transiency and fleeting nature of human plans. COVID has emptied calendars, revised vacations, and even canceled Coco and Carol's. And, and although this may be disappointing, it is also a grace to the people of God because it reminds us of our complete, utter, total dependence on God for everything. Like Paul, we can make our plans, we can express our desires, but at the end of the day, we will only move forward if the Lord wills. And what a great hope that is. Our Father, who was filled with extraordinary great love and mercy toward us, the one who sent God the Son Jesus to bear the shame of our sin, the one who's coming to renew our world life every month, every day, every moment, ultimately goes according to your Father's plan. The world turns according to his purposes, not man's. So we can rejoice, dear saints, the future of our world, including this COVID season, election season, whatever comes, ultimately depends on the will of our God. And so let us live our lives under the banner of if the Lord wills. Not with frustration, not with discouragement, but with incredible joy and peace, knowing that our loving and wise Father in heaven governs the world. Because as Paul shows us, disciples live their theology. Leaving Ephesus, we're told in verse 22 that the next stop for Paul was the seaport in Caesarea. Luke writes, when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. So being in southern Israel, Caesarea was close to Jerusalem. Hence, Paul takes this opportunity to greet the church, which is almost certainly a reference to the believers in Jerusalem. And again, Paul is not seeking to stay long. So he quickly departs to Antioch, which is up north, even though it says down. And then in verse 23, Luke briefly summarizes the subsequent travels of Paul after his time in Antioch, which begins his third missionary journey. Luke writes, after spending some time there, Antioch, he departed and went from one place to the next to the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, taking this route... Stopping from place to place through this region would have taken Paul significantly longer than if he would have just taken a boat back to Ephesus, which was his primary destination of choice. Remember, he told the Ephesians he would return, and he meant to do so. But instead of hopping on a boat, Paul chose to go an extra 1,500 miles, again, under ancient traveling conditions. And what does Luke tell us that he's doing? strengthening all the disciples. That word strengthen could be translated as establish. And the idea is that Paul is visiting these Christians who trusted in Jesus through his missionary work and he's encouraging, he's, he's ministering to them in such a way that they are stronger, they're more committed, they're more firm in their faith once he leaves. He's strengthening all the disciples. And this is not the first time Paul revisited his church plants. In fact, we learn that in Acts chapter 15, verse 36, Paul's second missionary journey, the one he just completed upon his arrival in Antioch, was initiated. It was born out of a desire that Paul and Barnabas had to return and visit the brothers in every city to see how they were doing. 
For seven years, I worked as a truck dispatcher, and it was a really hard time in my life. Truck dispatching, just not for me. Um, and, and really, my job boiled down to answering tons of phone calls and giving drivers information that needed to, to pick up and deliver various types of cargo, from concrete to PVC pipe to military Humvees. And, and one of the most important parts of my job was the, was the process of follow-up. See, when a driver got loaded, that wasn't the end of my responsibilities, but just the beginning. Because in order to make sure the load got to its destination, I needed to call the driver to ensure that everything was going according to plan every day. And when I failed to do so, that's when the problem started. Trust me, it's not a good feeling when you receive a a phone call from an angry customer who's like, where's my material for my job? And you don't know where it's at. Let me call you back. In this way, being a discipler is not much different than being a truck dispatcher because follow-up is just as important. Hence, it was Paul's normal practice to follow up with believers. For him, making disciples was not just about getting them baptized and dunked. It required intentionally and regularly reaching out to believers in order to encourage and strengthen their faith. Indeed, that's exactly what Paul did, not only through his travels, but also through his letters as well. It was a form of follow-up, discipleship, teaching doctrine, correcting errors, celebrating victories. And, And therefore, from the first profession of faith to the encouragement of mature church leaders like Timothy and Titus, Paul never thought one's discipleship ended. It was always about follow up. Even for himself, writing about his spiritual maturity in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, he says this, Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect. I'm not perfect. But I press on to make it my own, Paul says. And this is why here at E3, I love that we talk about full-spectrum discipleship. So whether one is evangelizing the lost or strengthening the found, it's all a part of fulfilling our mission to multiply committed followers of Jesus Christ, both locally and globally. So brothers and sisters, disciples follow up. And note that Paul went out of his way to do so an extra 1,500 miles. This means that follow-up often will cost us time and energy, and, but, but it's what we're called to do. So so who in your life do you need to follow up with? Who is God calling you to to strengthen and encourage this week? Who do do you need to have lunch or coffee with or just make a phone call to? Now, after Luke briefly informs us of Paul's return to Antioch, noting a few of his stops along the way and the start of his third missionary journey, he now turns to introduce us to Apollos. And in verses 24 and 25, he gives us some important biographical information about him. Luke writes, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. And from this really short profile, we learn a lot about Apollos. First, he's a Jew from Alexandria, 
which was the second largest city in the Roman Empire and was the leading intellectual and cultural center of the Hellenistic world. It even contained a library with over 400,000 volumes. This is pre the printing press. So it was an amazing place. And so it makes sense coming from a city that was on the cutting edge of literature and, and culture that Apollos was what Luke calls an eloquent man. He, he could speak and articulate himself with extraordinary skill. And even beyond his, his verbal acumen, Luke also tells us that Apollos was competent in the scriptures. He was well-versed in the Older Testament. He had a robust and scriptural knowledge base. And so to put it in our context, he's like Pastor Gary right out of seminary, capable in speech and exegesis, just killing it. And, and in verse 25, we learn that Apollos was already a Christian. This is what Luke means when he says that Apollos had been instructed in the way of the Lord. In fact, Luke describes Apollos as being fervent in spirit, which means that he was enthusiastic, he was excited, and if we translate it fervent literally, he was boiling in the spirit. In our day, we'd say that he was on fire. He's on fire for God. However, Apollos did have a deficiency. Luke says that he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. In other words, he wasn't teaching the correct or full doctrine on baptism. So then, in these two verses, Luke paints a glowing picture of Apollos. He's super intelligent. Uh, an extremely gifted preacher and teacher. He's on fire for the Lord, but he, but he still has some gaps in his understanding of Jesus. But that's about to change once he meets Priscilla and Aquila. Luke, Luke writes in verse 26, he, Apollos, began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So Apollos is, you know, in the synagogue, he's doing his thing. He's, he's boldly preaching about Jesus, yet he's a little off on some things. You know, it can't be perfect, namely baptism. And, and two of Paul's co-disciplers are present. They, they hear his air, and the text says they took him aside. And this is an interesting phrase, because it could also be taken to mean that he showed them hospitality. They, they welcomed him into their home. In fact, the NIV translation translates it that way, that they invited him uh, into their home. So there are two marks of a disciple exhibited in this event that I want to focus on. First, know how Priscilla and Aquila handles the situation. They don't harshly criticize him in front of the others. But they took him aside. That is, they warmly and respectfully corrected him in private. They didn't jump at the first opportunity to expose his mistake at the synagogue. In this way, we see that disciples, when correcting faulty beliefs and attitudes of other disciples, and that's something we must do, it's best to take them aside. To do it in a way that is gracious, kind, and even private in most cases. Second, Apollos, even with all his gifting, all his knowledge, all his skill, the big shot coming from the big city, all of this, he still humbled himself to learn from two tent makers. And this teaches us that disciples, even the extremely gifted ones like Apollos, must humbly recognize that they have not arrived. Paul didn't arrive. And so they have also room to grow. And so from this event, we see that disciples, they're both gracious in correction and humble in learning. 
And as a result of his humility, look at what happened in Apollos' ministry. In verses 27 and 28, Luke writes, And when he, Apollos, wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. They confirmed his calling. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. See how the humility of Paul, I mean Apollos, led to fruitful ministry in Achaia? He arrived and greatly helped those who had believed through grace. And, and I want us to note something very, very important here. Luke writes, he greatly helped those who through grace, through grace had believed. And this wording is incredibly strategic on Luke's part. Remember the context. Apollos has remarkable speaking ability and a passionate fervor for the Lord. He's well equipped to persuade and influence others. Luke even says in verse 28 that he powerfully refuted the Jews. But Luke also wants to make it very clear that they didn't believe because of Apollos' gifted rhetoric or enthusiasm, but they came to saving faith in Jesus through what? The grace of God. And the same is true today. One may sit under the most faithful, the most intelligent, the most dynamic preacher in the world, but he or she will only trust in Jesus by the grace of God. And so let's end this message on the marks of a discipler by highlighting how the salvation of unbelievers and the growth of believers doesn't depend on the gifting of a discipler and thank God for that. Because we're not that great. And we don't exhibit all these marks perfectly, do we? Thank God it depends on the grace of God. And so this morning, from God's word, we have observed many different marks of a discipler. And so again, I want to encourage us to choose one, choose two, maybe three that you need to work on. Do you need more courage to face opposition do you, do you need to grow in your willingness to endure suffering for the sake of the gospel? Is God pressing you to develop some, some ministry partnerships, some, some friends, some community? Maybe you need to follow up with someone this week. Whatever mark God is pressing on our heart, let's not go forward without responding to God's voice this week. Because then what's, really, what's, what's it really worth? Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful that you made us disciples of your son and you've given us this great mission filled with all uh, purpose and meaning and joy to go out and make more disciples. You, uh, disciples, you called us to uh, be disciples. And so, Father, we see these marks and we see that how we, we don't measure up. And we ask, Father, by your spirit, would you help us grow? Would you help us uh, develop these marks? Would you help us be more faithful to the mission you've given us in the ways you've wired us, Lord, in the context you've placed us? Father, help us so that we can advance your name in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.